You're listening to the Live Church Livonia podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Hey everybody! Welcome, welcome, welcome to our Sunday service digitally here on the internet. You found us, we found you. Really pumped about it. My name's Alex. I'm on staff here as lead pastor at Life Church Livonia. And I want to say welcome. If you've been checking us out and you've been tuning in for a couple weeks, I would love to invite you if you're able to join us in person. And for those of you uh, who are joining us digitally, I'm just so thankful you're here. I'm so thankful to be with you. We're currently in our series, The Seven Realities of Experiencing God. And this series is about the core biblical understandings of how God works in the world and how we experience Him. Not just by hearing about Him, what things other people say or in church or singing about Him, but knowing Him by experience and learning to know and do God's will. Week one, we talked about how God is always at work around us in the world. He's always at work around us and every, throughout every part of human history. And we looked at the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus and how God has been at work all through human history. Last week, we talked about how God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and is practical. This week, we're going to be looking at the fact that God invites you to join him in his work. Next week, Kate is going to be speaking on how God speaks, because God speaks by his Holy Spirit, through scripture, through prayer, through the church, and through circumstances. Week five is that when God invites you into his work, it creates a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. Week six is that to join God in his work, we must make major adjustments in our lives. And then week seven, finally, we come to know God by experience as we obey him and he accomplishes his will through us. So today we're going to be looking at how God invites us to join him in his work. Um, And I'm really excited about that. But before we, we jump into that, I want to talk a little bit about the new Batman movie, I mean, come on, look at that face, look at that face. I saw the movie, not this past Saturday, the one before, I was talking about it a bunch during the morning last Sunday, and like 20 of you, I talked about it like three times too. And one of you, I don't remember who was like, oh, are you going to talk about that in your sermon next Sunday? And yes, of course I'm going to talk about that in my sermon next Sunday. You kidding me? The movie was fantastic. Batman's my favorite superhero. How can I not talk about this? Anyway, I'm not going to give away spoilers, and I hope you appreciate my self-control about that, okay? But here's the premise of the movie. I want you to picture it with me. It's Bruce Wayne's second year as Batman. He's gained notoriety, and the criminal underworld has begun to fear him as he has disrupted the balance of power in Gotham City. He has developed a, a loose and kind of blossoming partnership with Lieutenant Jim Gordon, who is not yet Commissioner Gordon, by the way. Bruce has been uh, obsessively losing himself in the persona of Batman for over a year now. And the days blend together as he becomes more and more nocturnal and detached from any semblance of normal life. His need for revenge consumes him. Only the media is calling him Batman at this point, and what he calls himself is vengeance. 
He's a striving to make a difference in the city, the city he loves, for the sake of his late parents and their legacy. He's dishing back revenge to the criminals who have taken advantage of the citizens of Gotham for so long. But despite his efforts, and despite his creative and brutal tactics, crime is up. Drug usage is up. And civil unrest is at an all-time high in Gotham City. Not only that, but in response to his brutal and creative crime-fighting style, the underworld has begun to respond with some increased brutality and creativity of their own. So the movie begins with Batman asking himself, am I really making any difference at all? Does what I'm doing really matter? And how do I make a difference that's gonna last? And part of what I loved about this movie is that those questions are so deeply human, right? They're, they're human questions. All of us ask, Am I making a difference? How do I make a difference in the world? Does my presence here really matter? And all of us hope to answer those questions throughout our lives. It's a question that comes up in our teen years, and in our 20s, and in our 30s, and 40s, and 50s, and 60s, etc. Because at the core of every human heart, we have a desire to answer those questions with yes. It does matter you're here. You are making a difference. What you're doing is important, and you're important too. We don't just want to know that we exist. We want to know it's good that we exist. That we are contributing something to the world that matters and that is making it better. However, it's often unclear for most of us how to do that. Most of us search our whole lives trying to figure out how to answer those questions. So we inevitably try different strategies. Some of us try and find that meaning in our work. Hoping that if we excel in the eyes of our colleagues and superiors, that it will fill the void and give us that sense of meaning that we long for. But if you've gotten to the top of your corporate ladder or have seen it, you've probably had some kind of crisis realizing, oh my gosh, it's empty. It's not gonna fill me. Some of us look for this meaning in the eyes of another person, in a romance. We hope that in giving ourselves to a person, in body and in mind and in emotions, that when they reciprocate that self-giving, it will somehow satisfy our soul as we experience their love for us back. But if you've been married or in a relationship for any amount of time, you've probably had a crisis in your relationship as you realize that as wonderful as this other person is, they simply cannot and will not satisfy me. And they certainly cannot and will not give me meaning. Some of us look for that meaning in our children. Some of us look for that meaning in our friends. Some of us look for that meaning in our grades or in our sports. We hope that if we excel in these areas and receive recognition, that the rewards and better opportunities, that sense of pride in ourselves that we get, will somehow transform themselves into a sense of purpose as we keep running after them. But it doesn't. And when we graduate, and we didn't go pro, and there's no more teachers to win over, we have a crisis of meaning, wondering if the sacrifices we made were really worth it. But here's the deal. You were made for a relationship with Jesus, and you were made to join God in God's mission. It's imperative to understanding your own sense of purpose and contribution to the world to know that God invites you 
to join him in his work. However, out of all seven realities of experiencing God, this is one of the most misapplied and one where the most mistakes are made. Uh, and I don't want that for you. Here at Life Church, we want to help you join God in his work and experience God finding your purpose and finding that meaning you've been longing for. So the question we're going to answer today is simply this. How do I join God in his work and keep from missing him? How do I join God in his work and keep from missing him? Luckily, many people in scripture struggle with this question. And uh, they experience the same pitfalls that we do in learning to answer it. We can learn a lot from their lives. And this is so steeped into every story in the Bible um, that I was unsure at first where to, where to pull from in terms of what scripture we were going to study today. But since we looked at Joseph two weeks ago, I thought, hey, we'll just pick right up where we left off because the story after Joseph's is the story of a man named Moses. And so we're going to look at that. Scripture says, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor, brick and mortar, and all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So before Moses is born, God's chosen family, Israel, begins to flourish. But through some old-fashioned racism and desire for power, this growing nation turns into a nation of slaves because of the ruthlessness of the Egyptians. For a little over 400 years, the people of Israel continue to grow and to suffer under Egyptian rule. And the people of Israel cry out to God. They ask for relief, they ask for salvation, they ask for freedom. And now the Bible refers to this historical moment often and uses the Israelites in Egypt as an allegory for humanity's slavery to sin. And to illustrate how the kingdom of the world is used against the kingdom of heaven. It's in this story God is first called Savior. And he's called Savior by his people because he has saved them from Egypt and from slavery into freedom. And I want to recognize a, a truth in this before we move on from this. God was the one who decided to free Israel from slavery. It wasn't Moses. God was the one who determined before Moses was even born that this was a problem that he was going to solve. And this is a spiritual truth I want us to understand. God sees the problem first. 
We're not informing God of problems that he is unaware of. We're only seeing problems that God is in the process of solving. So whether it's COVID-19 or the invasion in the Ukraine or the economy or the political division or the racism in America, God is aware of these problems. He has seen them first. And his way of solving them is often much different from ours and much, much deeper. So the issues we encounter may be a shock to us, but they are not to God. And I want to take a look at how God chooses to solve the problem of Israel's slavery. The Bible says, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the banks of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slaves to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. So in order to control the Hebrews, uh, Pharaoh has determined to kill all of the male babies that they have so that they can't create a military force that would supersede his own. So when Moses is born, his mother obviously doesn't want Moses to get killed, and so she tries to hide him. And when she can't hide him any longer, she sends him floating down the reeds of the Nile in hopes that he survives. Not only does he survive, but he ends up being adopted by the very power that is oppressing his people. So as God sees the people of Israel in slavery, he determines to free them before Moses is even born. And his solution isn't to kill Pharaoh in his sleep. It's not to send the plagues that he's going to do through Moses upon Pharaoh at this time. It's not to send a warring nation to destabilize Pharaoh's control and dethrone his power. It's also not to send another famine. Instead, God's solution to this problem is to send a baby. As I talk to many young couples without kids, many of them express their grief, their fear, their anxiety about bringing a baby into the world in such a rocky, turbulent, and difficult time as ours. And one of the ironies in that is that God's solution to a troubled period in human history is almost always to bring a baby into it, which is seen most clearly in the birth of Jesus. One of the overarching principles throughout scripture that this shows us is that God works through people. God works through people. <clears throat> I am sure that he could have chosen much more efficient means <laughs> of working, but this is how God has designed the world. Even before the fall of humanity into sin, God makes Adam. And what he doesn't do is say, great, Adam, glad you're here. I got to name all these animals. Could you just take notes for me and read them back to me later? He doesn't make Adam as an assistant. He makes Adam as a co-worker. He says, Adam, I have a job for you. I need you to do this. And we see that pattern continue even after the fall of mankind into sin. When God wants to do something in the world, he calls a person to it or a people to it. Whether that's Abraham beginning a nation 
or Moses setting Israel free, or Joshua conquering the promised land, or Joseph keeping his family alive, or Ruth preserving the Messianic line, or Jeremiah calling the people of Israel back from their sins, or Esther saving the Jewish people in exile, or Jesus saving people from their sins, and now there's you, and now there's me. Not all of us are going to be some mosaic figure in our time, but all of us were born at this time, to join God in what he is doing. I want you to know you were made for this. You were made to join God in his work. And he's inviting you into that work today. So God determines to set Israel free. And he calls Moses into existence to do it. Let's read what happens next. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one of the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. So Moses, as he grows, he's about 40 years old at this time, and he senses, he sees the suffering of his people. He can identify the problem, and he senses in his own soul that maybe he can do something about this. And maybe, in fact, he was even born for this moment. Somehow or another, he comes to the conclusion that his place of privilege, his place of power, is something he can utilize on behalf of his people. And I just wonder, I wonder his, in his mind, was this a slow and steady realization over many years? Was it a spur-of-the-moment impulse that rose up from within him? The Bible doesn't say but it does say that Moses took matters into his own hands. So he takes action that was honestly well within the problem-solving paradigms of the day. In fact, as a member of Pharaoh's family, this was almost certainly, especially by 40, not the first person he had seen die, and maybe not even the first person he'd killed. We don't know. We only know that his plan doesn't work. And we know it alienates him from the very people he was trying to help. This isn't just Moses' history. This is what happens every time you and I try to accomplish God's work in our way. We think we understand something about our culture, about our time and history, about our context, about the problems at hand, and then we enact a plan. And we often do it on God's behalf, saying things like, it's God's will, or the Bible says, or the Lord told me to. And Moses made the same mistake we make. <clears throat> he tries to get God to bless his plans rather than discerning what God's plan is and joining God and God's plan. You know what I'm saying? Hashtag Drake knows God's plan all the way. Henry Blackaby, if you didn't get the joke, it's okay. We're moving on. Henry Blackaby, uh, in Experiencing God, writes this. He says, we ask God to bless our plans. And then we promise to give him the glory when he does. Yet, God is not glorified by making our plans succeed. 
He receives glory when his will is done in his way. Christ is the head of the body, the church. What a difference it would make if we obeyed Christ as the head of that body. Because understanding what God is about to do where you are is more important than telling God what you want to do for him. You need to know what God has on his agenda for your church, community, and nation at this time in history. Then you and your church can adjust your lives to God, and he will let you know one step at a time how you and your church need to respond to what he is doing. Church, this is why I want to do this series. The leadership team, the staff and I, we are praying and asking God, what is on your agenda? Why have you brought us here to this time as this church? What is it you are inviting us into? And I believe we will discern that together as we each individually begin to see where God is at work around us and join him in that. More on that in a minute, but... This is the guts of what I want us to walk away with from this series. Because it's God who decided to address the problem of the people's slavery, and it's God who brought Moses into the world as a solution to that problem, and God who will continue the work of shepherding and stewarding and freeing his people once Moses is gone, it is God's work. It's not Moses' work. God invites Moses into his work, not the other way around. So let's see what happens next in the story. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So here Moses is, he's a runaway from his homeland. He finds himself now 80 years old, not as a governor of Egypt, not as a family to the Pharaoh, but as a shepherd, out in the wilderness. He was probably thinking that his life as a shepherd was the rest of his life. He spent 40 years in Egypt before he killed that man and ran away. And it's been 40 years since then. He probably thought of those 40 years in Egypt as a painful time in his life. They felt like a lifetime ago, too. And he can't help but think back on them with a sense of loss and of regret and of waste. Yet God doesn't see Moses' first 40 years as a waste, or even as simply an exercise in pain. God was silently, in plain sight, preparing Moses to become the person that God would invite into his work. For this purpose, at this time. And some of us are sitting here this morning, and we feel like life has been a waste. We are unsure what our purpose is. Kind of too embarrassed to ask and try to find out at this point. We feel like much of life has either passed us by or not been what we hoped or not worked out the way we thought. And we fear that we may have missed the boat on whatever it is God may have wanted to do with us or that we're too broken and have made too many bad choices. But that is just simply not what the Bible shows us. Instead, it shows us that God weaves every single part of our lives into his good plan, despite the sins and mistakes of our past that have been done by us or to us. He works in and in spite of every form of human power to accomplish his work, both in us and through us, if we let him. 
So whether you're 10, you're 20, you're 40, you're 80, God has brought you into this world to invite you to join him in his work. So let's continue the story and see what happens with Moses. So Moses is at the mountain of God, and there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Side note about this, I think it's amazing that the fact that it's holy ground doesn't mean Moses needs to put on more layers or get farther away. It means he needs to take off layers and get closer and more intimate with his very flesh touching the earth. Moving on. Then he said, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Did you notice that all the eyes in there? God saying, I've seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out. I am concerned. God is the one who decided to set the Israelites free. And God has invited Moses to join him in his work. God had a plan that he was inviting Moses into, not the other way around. And he tells Moses what he's going to accomplish and what Moses' next step of obedience is. And then this is how Moses replies. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord didn't appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Now, side note, tail is the most dangerous place to grab a snake. <laughs> the head is the safest part to grab a snake. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hands inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak. And when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put it back into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you, or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you've spoken to me. Uh, I'm slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. When the people of Israel are freed from Egypt, 
It isn't because of Moses' clever arguments or strategic plans. It isn't because of the old connections he had from his time in Egypt. It isn't because of his wise or persuasive words. The people of Israel are freed from the slavery in Egypt because of God's miraculous power. This is because God's work doesn't require my power or your power or Moses' power. God's work requires God's power. And God doesn't ask Moses for his power, and he's not asking you or me for our power. Instead, he asks Moses for his participation. And the same goes for you and for me. So today, I want you to know that you were made to join God in his work. I want you to know that because God works through people, he sees a problem in the world that he wants to solve, he brings someone like you into the world to invite you into his work. And because it's his work, it requires his power to move through you. So as I head toward our conclusion today, I want to equip you to be able to begin to discern how to join God in his work. And Kate is going to talk about this more next week as she talks about how to know you're hearing from God, how to discern his voice. But I think Henry Blackaby has, again, some helpful insights in in what this means. He says, when you see the Father at work around you, that is your invitation to adjust your life to him and join him in that work. Throughout scripture, God takes the initiative. When he comes to a person, he reveals himself and his activity. And that revelation is always an invitation for individuals to adjust their lives to God. None of the people God encountered could remain the same afterward. They had to make major adjustments in their lives to walk obediently with him. Strive to keep your life God-centered. God's revelation of his activity is an invitation for you to join him. So the question is, where do you see God at work around you? Because wherever he's working, he's inviting you to join him in some way. And we get really mistaken when, like Moses, we go, oh, and I know what way that is, and we rush ahead. So again, next week, that's why it's important to go, okay, Lord, I see you at work around me. Now show me what to do here. It may be simply to pray. It may be to get involved. It may be to give something. But God has to be the one to tell you that. And you may say, I don't know where God's at work around me. What what does it look like for God to be at work around me? And, And here's what I want you to know. You have to look for things that only God can do. Because only God creates a spiritual hunger in people's hearts where they go, my life isn't enough. It's not full. There's something missing and I need to go find it. God is the one that initiates that. He puts that in people's hearts. So where you see people in your circle of influence looking for meaning, looking for purpose, looking for more, they're looking for God. And God has brought you there to do something about that. Only God brings people to salvation. Only God can forgive someone's sins and give them new life and life to the full. Only God reveals spiritual truths where you see people looking for truth, longing to know truth. God is at work there pulling that person to himself. Only God brings wholeness and redemption where you see brokenness in the world, things in your family, things in your community. God wants to do something about that. Where you see people beginning to try to move toward wholeness. God is at work there. Only God convicts people of sin. Where you see people in your life regretting things that they know they've done wrong. God is at work in that. 
And he wants that conviction of sin to pull them to him. And he's put you there to do something about it. Only God convicts of righteousness and of justice. Where you see people longing to know and do what is right and longing to address evil. God is at work there. Where you see people longing for justice to make things right and good and whole. God is at work there. Now, each one of these is an opportunity. The results in each of these things, that's the work. That's why we work towards these things, is so that God would get his will in these. And that these opportunities wouldn't be distorted by our own sinfulness or sense of authority or power, like they were with Pharaoh. And so this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to begin to ask this week, Lord, show me where you are at work around me. Show me where you are inviting me to join you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, before God invites you into a work, he invites you into a relationship. That call to a relationship is a call to your purpose. I want you to know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. All the wickedness we see in the world, we have it in us. It's a sickness. It's a disease that all of us have. All of us were born having contracted it. And Jesus takes that and he makes it new. He takes away our sin. And when he died on the cross, he died with sin. Sin died with him. And when he rose up to new life, he rose to a life without sin. And he offers that to you today. A life that is life to the full. The purpose, the wholeness, the fullness you have been looking for and waiting for. It's in Jesus. He's taken your sins if you'll let him. And he's offering you life to the full. I want you to pray with me. If you feel God on your heart this morning, maybe you feel a conviction that you have been inactive or been scared to look where God is at work because it might require a change. Maybe this morning you've been longing, you've been trying to discern, Lord, what is next for me? And you need direction. Maybe this morning uh, you're here because you feel that pull, but you can't put words to it. I want you to pray with me in a moment, but before I do, I just want to pray a blessing over you. I just want to say, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, maker of heaven and earth, I long to know why I'm here and what you have made me for. Lord, I pray that you would show me in this day and this time what work you are inviting me into. Lord, give me patience and clarity. Father, I pray that you would open my spiritual eyes to see what it is that you are doing around me and calling me into. And Lord, give me the courage to respond. If you haven't ever committed your life to Jesus, if you've never surrendered to him as Lord of your life, to follow his way over yours, I just want to invite you to do that right now. And I want you to say with me, Lord, I am sorry. I am sorry. I'm sorry that I've lived so apart from you and so empty. I'm sorry for the people I've hurt and the things I've done 
have further broken the world and not healed it. But Lord, I want to change and I want more. And that meaning and purpose that you provide, Lord, I need that. And so I surrender myself to you. And I ask, Lord, that you would be the Lord of my life. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If God's moving in your heart this morning, whether you have committed your life to the Lord or you feel you've recommitted it, whether uh, you feel lit on fire for some kind of purpose or you need help figuring out what that is, please reach out to us in the comments or uh, via Facebook Messenger, and we would love to get a hold of you. You can also get a hold of us at our digital bulletin.